Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm going to be interviewing someone who's probably one of the the uh, longest that I've known who's a cardiac arrest survivor, and that is Mr. Gareth Coles. Well, welcome, Gareth. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you, on this cold and frosty morning. And you? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Good, good. So I just sort of uh, said that you're probably one of the longest that I've known because we met, and I use that in uh, sort of uh, air quotes, uh, <laughs> first, um Back in, I think it was 2014, or I became aware of you in 2014, which was on a an internet forum called Inspire, and that was a pre-SCA UK days. Um, and do you remember those times? I remember it well. I remember um, hunting around uh, on Google for uh, anything at all that could give me some answers to to the journey that we're we're probably about to discuss, and. Um, yeah, I remember finding Inspire. I remember being confused by Inspire because, uh, as it turns out, it was an American forum and um, their healthcare system is very different to ours. And, and yeah, with that led to the, the meet-up in London and, and the rest is history, as they say. Indeed. I mean, although we did sort of uh, converse on there and uh, I did have a little sneaky look back at... Um, some of the the conversations and things and uh i looked on your profile and you only actually started one conversation and and it was on the anniversary of your uh event which hopefully you can tell us about in a little bit but i just thought i'll quote you a little bit um from what you said there i don't know if you remember i have but... no memory of it whatsoever so this would be interesting <laughs> so it was a 10 40 at night so uh i don't know if that gives you a clue into your uh, habits but <laughs> it said uh i'm not good with words they are not my thing but today i feel i should try and then you say exactly one year ago today i suffered an sca while sitting at home minding my own business and then you talk a bit a little bit about your event but uh, and then the final bit uh, i thought was just quite relevant and you say but who cares I'm still here, exclamation mark. I am a survivor, exclamation mark again. And I thought that was quite uh, quite good. So, you, <laughs> uh, But can you tell me about your um, your event and sort of perhaps a little bit about what life was like beforehand as well and, and a little back, bit about your personal situation? You're a man, aren't you? And uh, you're in <laughs> Birmingham and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, I live, well, at the time I lived uh, in Birmingham. Um, it, I don't remember exactly the date now. Um, I think it was, uh, well, I know it was 2013, but I can't remember the exact date. That, that tells you something about how my survival was going, I suppose. Um, I was uh, working uh, as a, an engineer uh, down in Northampton, which was a good hour or so commute uh, from uh, from our house in, in Birmingham, um, living with my partner, Sue, uh, who I've lived with. Uh, I, won't, I won't tell you how many years because I'll get it wrong and she'll be listening. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's been uh, some considerable time. Um, and life at that point in time was, consisted of uh, work and sleep. Uh, and that was pretty much it. I, I'm not a, a morning person. And in fact, my customer base 
back then tended to be um, from America. So I used to work kind of mid-morning until late evening um, because late evening UK time is when all my customers in the US were, were awake and at work. So um, my normal day was, was quite offset. I tend to get home around probably 9 to 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, most evenings. Um, have something to eat, say goodnight to Sue because she is a morning person, so she'd go to bed and then I'd, uh, I'd spend a couple of hours on my own in the evening kind of unwinding and uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's uh, that was my kind of normal normal routine at the time. And so can you uh, sort of then go on to tell me a little bit about your, your event? Sure. Um, my event was... Uh, I had a heart attack, uh, which led to a cardiac arrest. So I guess I'm lucky in that respect in that I've got a diagnosis. Um, I know why mine happened. Um, but I was a bit of a ticking time bomb on that particular night because actually I'd had a heart attack two days earlier. Um, but I didn't know that I'd had one. I knew I'd had something. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I'd gone to bed a, a couple of nights before all this happened. Uh, just sort of in the process of drifting off to sleep. And I then got this very strange sensation in my chest, um, in the middle of my chest. It wasn't pain. I wouldn't say it was painful, but certainly there was something a little bit weird going on there. Um, enough that it, you know, I kind of sat bolt upright in bed, thought, oh, Christ, what's this? Um, and then it stopped. It lasted four or five seconds, and then it stopped. And, you know, I kind of kind of sat there waiting for it to happen again. It didn't happen again. Eventually, I lay back down and it didn't happen again. And then, and then I drifted off to sleep and, and I got up in the next morning and went to work. But I do remember driving to work the next morning thinking, well, that was all a bit weird. If that happens again, then I really should go and get it checked out. Uh, and then, yeah, two days later, a uh, similar sort of thing, although on this particular evening, I was... Sue had gone to bed. I was sitting at my computer with a, a cup of coffee and a cigarette playing poker, which I do uh, quite a lot of evenings, actually. Um, and then it happened again. I got this really weird uh, sensation in my chest, exactly the same feeling. So, of course, I ignored it. I, I kind of thought, OK, well, it's going to go. It went after a couple of seconds last time. So I just sat there and waited for it to go. Um, and it didn't. And then all of a sudden I got every bit of pain you've ever felt in your life concentrated in the in the middle of my chest and quite debilitating struggling to breathe and then i realized you know straight away what was going on um and I, yeah i was having a, a massive heart attack at that point so what did you do well i remember sitting there next to next to my computer is is our telephone uh, or was at the time and i remember thinking okay i've got two choices here i can either pick up the phone and dial 999 or, or I can go and wake Sue up. And I was on the verge of picking up the phone and something in my head said, if you start this conversation, you may never get to the end of it. So whatever you do, try and wake Sue up. And bear in mind, I'm in agony at this point and I can't actually really shout. There's no way I can shout up the stairs to, to wake her up. So somehow I managed to get myself upstairs into our bedroom. Um, I woke Sue up, told her I was in trouble. We needed an ambulance. Uh, and that's almost the last thing I can consciously remember doing. I do have a vague memory um, of somehow I got back down the stairs and actually the last thing I can remember is being on my hands and knees in our hallway <clears throat> uh, 
Um, and I was on our, my hands and knees because it eased the pain a little bit. I don't know why, but it, it, in my head, it eased the pain a little bit. So I remember being on my hands and knees in the hallway. Um, the front door was open and Sue was standing next to the front door. And that is the last thing that uh, that I remember until I woke up in hospital. Is it, and she was standing by the for, front door because you had phoned 999, presumably, and waiting for the ambulance. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, obviously, I wasn't uh, in cardiac arrest. I was still conscious at that point. So um, that is the last thing that I remember. Uh-huh. Uh, apparently, the ambulance, well, clearly the ambulance arrived. I don't know whether it was paramedics first or an ambulance first or whatever. But fortunately, we lived in Birmingham at the time. We were we lived very, very close to Samwell Hospital, which is the major heart uh, centre in Birmingham. Um, we're about a four or five minute ambulance ride um, from that hospital. Um, so they... This now is what I'm told. This isn't what I remember, but you know, the ambulance crew arrived. Apparently, I was chatting to them in our hallway. They they did you know what they do. Um, they put me in the ambulance along with Sue, um, and off we went to uh, to Sandwell Hospital. Um, and at that point, again, I was still conscious. I was still chatting um, to the paramedics and, and the ambulance crew, um, and I actually went into cardiac arrest as we arrived at the hospital. So literally as we were reversing up to the doors of A&E, that's when I went into cardiac arrest. Uh-huh. I mean, there's quite a few. It's funny, I didn't realise that. I know, although I've known you for a few years now, I didn't actually realise that that's where you were arrested in in the ambulance near the hospital because quite a few people are, uh, have similar stories. Um, I wonder from a statistical point of view whether they class that as in hospital or out of hospital. <laughs> oh, I- I'm classing it as out of hospital. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't quite through the doors yet. <laughs> no, no, well, I certainly wasn't through the doors because they started CPR in the ambulance. Uh-huh. Um, as the, the kind of, they opened the doors and threw Sue out, um, literally, I understand. Uh, and then half the, the, the resus team or crash team or whatever they're called um, kind of came running into the ambulance. And they actually got me back originally in the ambulance. They didn't even take me into um, into the hospital. Um, they started CPR, and, and, and the first of the, the shocks, at least, was certainly inside the ambulance. So, mm-hmm. and I, from from that um, first message that I quoted uh, earlier, you, you did say a little bit about something that occurred um, because of that, for, because of the CPR. It said that you had got a, a broken sternum and ribs from that. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know at the time. Um, but it, it it transpired a few weeks later when I was still having a, a, an awful lot of chest pain um, that I went back to hospital. In fact, I went back to hospital several times. Um, I, I developed uh, pericarditis, which, uh, if anyone's ever had it, is presents itself as almost identical to a heart attack. Um, so you kind of think you're having another one. Um, so uh, a little while later, I was back in hospital for that. But yeah, um, X-ray showed I had several broken ribs and a broken sternum from the um, from the CPR. Because I, I did wonder whether um, when I read that, I thought, wow, I, I know um, your partner Sue's a, a physio, isn't she? I think yes, but she she's a very slight lady, and I thought, yes. wow, <laughs> she must have been going some to a, a broken <laughs> sternum and ribs. But no, Sue isn't actually the one that, that that did the CPR. I mean, I'm sure she would have done had it happened earlier, but um, in my case, because it happened in the ambulance, um, 
I got CPR, not from the ambulance crew, but from uh, um, somebody that came sort of running out from, from A&E. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was quite a big lady. i met i met her a week later and uh yeah said thank you and um yeah she's uh, she was quite a big girl (laughs) (laughs) so so how long were you uh down for do you know um about 40 minutes um in total um what they told me was that my i had i don't know whether you class it as multiple arrests i class it as one but basically they, they would try and restart my heart and it would kind of start and stop again Mm-hmm. Um, the the cardiologist said it was a bit like a car that didn't quite have enough choke. Uh, it would kind of try and start, but it wouldn't quite make it. Uh-huh. Um, so they they had numerous attempts at numerous shocks and numerous attempts at getting it to to restart and, and get back into rhythm. Uh-huh. Um, so in total, about forty minutes, but it certainly wasn't forty minutes in you know forty minutes from start to finish, if you like. But you know it was kind of starting and stopping in that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's and obviously quite, being quite... in hospital and having you know really good CPR, as it turns out, um, you know the oxygen flow was was still very good. So uh, I, although forty minutes is quite a long time, um, I was never really without oxygen for any significant period of time. Mm-hmm. Did they use a, a mechanical CPR machine? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't think this girl would have let them. <laughs> <laughs> She, she liked getting her hands on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no, they didn't. It was all manual. So, do you know were you put into a, an induced coma afterwards, or did they keep you conscious? I was uh, put into a coma. Um, apparently, um, and again, this is all what I've been told. Um, I, I wasn't the ideal patient. Um, I when they got me back, I was uh, very, very aggressive. Um, according to Sue, I was, uh, I was literally screaming, uh, screaming at anyone and everyone. Um, well, there's no different to now. <laughs> well, no, that's true. No, it's a, maybe it's a little bit more considered now, but uh, yeah, I do have my moments. Um, she wasn't allowed in to the, um, the room that I was taken into. Um, she was kind of thrown out the ambulance and into a waiting room. Um, so it was, must've been very weird for Sue because, you know, at, at the time that she was thrown out of the ambulance, I was dead. Um, and the only reason she knew that I was still alive was because she could hear me screaming, uh, either in agony or in anger. I don't know which it was, or maybe a combination of the two. And so they, they put me into an induced coma, uh, I think as much for their protection as for mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I, I have heard that before, but yeah, I, th- I think a lot of us do go into that very agitated and semi-aggressive state. I don't know if it's just a, a natural reflex of protection mode, um, because quite often people are trying to do things that are potentially or seemingly uh, not very nice to you, like sticking something down your throat and uh, yeah. sticking things in yeah. you. And you want to, you know, you don't understand that they're trying to save your life at the time, do you? But, um, no, I mean it's all guesswork, I guess, because uh, you know I have no, I have no memory of it. I can only go by by what I'm told. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, that's uh, that's what they said. I, I was put into a, a coma for either my or their protection. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so what happened next in terms of your sort of treatment and hospital care? Well. The next thing I remember uh, is waking up um, 
on the Sunday. So the arrest happened on the Thursday night. Um, I was in the coma from for Friday, Saturday. And then mid-morning on the Sunday, um, I was brought out of the coma. Um, and I remember that. that. That's a very strange experience. I mean, you, you've been through it, Paul, yourself, so you'll know what it's like. But it's not like waking up in the morning. Coming out of a coma is... is an incredibly difficult thing to explain, but when you go to when you wake up in the morning, it's not a surprise to you uh, because somewhere in your conscious or subconscious memory, whether you fell asleep at, at home or, or on a sofa or in an aeroplane or, or wherever, somewhere in your memory you remember going to sleep. So waking up isn't a surprise. But I have no memory of ever going into a coma. Mm-hmm. So coming out of the coma is a real shock. It's, it's something that's very, very difficult. I certainly found very, very difficult to process. And I didn't understand where I was or why I was there. The last thing I remember, I was at home on, on my um, on the floor in my hallway. So I, I had no, I had no reference point to where I was. I could have been anywhere in the world at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Very so strange experience. Were you coherent when you came out? No. <laughs> I thought I was, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> I, I came out quite well, I think, but I remember it was quite a funny story, actually. I remember um, as I was waking up, there was a, a screen, a TV screen in front of me, um, and it had the date on it, and, and it said Sunday, and, and um, Sunday at about 12 o'clock, I think. And I remember talking to the nurse because it, I don't know if it's the same everywhere, but you have like a dedicated nurse when you're in um, ICU, I think it is. Um, and I remember saying to her, the, the clock's wrong on the television. Can you put it right? And she said, no, it's not wrong, Gareth. That, that is the right time. I said, well, okay, it might be the right time, but the day is wrong. It, it's not Sunday. It's Friday because obviously I'd lost three days. I had no idea that it was Sunday. And she kept insisting, Gareth, it's Sunday. Um, but it, it can't be because it was, you know, five minutes ago, it was, it was Thursday. It can't be Sunday now. And I got very angry and, and very cross with this nurse, poor lady. Um, she got the, the short end of the stick, I think, as I was coming round. Um, I remember getting very angry with her and I said, well, okay, if it's, if it's Sunday and it's 12 o'clock, then could you put the Grand Prix on the television? Cause I knew there was a Grand Prix that weekend. And she said, no, I can't, put, I, I can't put the Grand Prix on, but you just have to trust me, it's Sunday. And, I, I, yeah, I got very cross, and I was kind of quite proud of myself that I was right because, you know, this woman couldn't prove to me that it was Sunday by putting the Grand Prix on the television. Um, it turns out the reason she couldn't do that is because it wasn't a television. It was actually the ECG monitor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was the thing that was keeping me alive, um, and that's why she couldn't put it on yeah, very strange experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I concur. It, it is very a very weird thing. Is I've said before that you, I mean, you've got no memory of why you're there, and it's like I could have been abducted by aliens and all of that sort of yeah, stuff. Or yeah. it's it's bizarre. You could literally be anywhere in the world. In fact, you don't even know that you're alive at that point. No, you don't. And that that feeling can continue for many years afterwards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> So that was what happened, it, you know, medically that's what happened. Um, and I recovered actually pretty quickly. Well, no, that's not true. I, I physically recovered in the early stage quite quickly. So did you have any um, 
medical interventions because you had a heart attack? Sorry, yeah, I'd, um, in between um, being resuscitated and, and waking up, yeah, I had three stents fitted uh, to my uh, LAD, and I won't embarrass myself by trying to pretend I know uh, what the medical term for that is, but um, yeah, I had three stents fitted, and uh, uh, that was it. Um, I had no ICD because uh, they knew um, why my uh, cardiac arrest had happened. So um, I was discharged uh, with a with a drug regime to to look after the stents. The the well, yeah, okay. It, it sounds uh, pretty not standard, but I, I guess a lot of people who experience a heart attack will. Um, have it addressed in that sort of way and that's uh i guess that must be quite reassuring to you that they can uh, find something especially after you had that episode the couple of days before where it was a little bit of a mystery um and is is at that point they could say oh you've had could they see that it was well obviously you've got three stents we're guessing they're in different places are they uh no they're all in a row okay yeah, three three in a row. It was quite a significant blockage. Well, it was a total blockage. Uh-huh. So, um, so were they saying that the the <coughs> the one that you had two days before was in the same place, but may, maybe yes. it, yeah. it didn't completely block at that point? And um, no one's ever explained that to me, to be honest. And, and, and I don't think I've ever asked. Um, but I assume that that that's the case. Uh-huh. Just just for your knowledge, though, the LAD is the left anterior descending artery. Fantastic. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I think they called it the Widowmaker. Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I I guess it's quite a common, uh, quite a common thing. I guess so. Yes. So, yeah, quite. I I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, Paul, because I had no idea. I've got to be honest. At that time, I had no idea what the difference between a, um, a heart attack and a cardiac arrest was. I didn't even know that there was a difference. And I didn't know that you could have one without the other. So um, in hindsight, yes, it is very reassuring to know that um, I had a, a diagnosis. I had a cause um, because I had no idea that you know, idiopathic arrests actually happened. Um, so, yeah, looking back on it now, it is quite reassuring to know. But, of course, at the time, I didn't know that, that it was reassuring. Mm-hmm. So so how, how long were you in hospital for and then... What what happened about your discharge and did you get medications and stuff like that? Yeah, so I was in hospital for a spectacularly short period of time. As I say, it happened on the Thursday night. I was brought out of the coma on the Sunday. By the Sunday evening, I was reasonably coherent. Um, I spent Monday, well, Sunday night and Monday uh, on a ward. I was uh, moved from ICU to CCU which I believe is a cardiac care unit, could be coronary care unit, I'm not sure. Um, I, uh, Monday, my parents came and visited. I hadn't seen them at any point throughout this. Um, and on the Tuesday, you know, by Monday night, I was bored. I felt okay. The pain had all gone. Um, well, the pain hadn't all gone, but I had pain from um, the CPR. I didn't notice from CPR at the time, but it certainly wasn't, you know, heart attack type pain. Um and on the Tuesday morning, quite early, because the ward I was on was, was full of old, ill people, um, I got up on Tuesday morning, unplugged myself from all the monitors, went and had a shower, got myself dressed, and by the time my cardiologist came round uh, doing his rounds at 9 o'clock, I was pretty much dressed, sitting in my chair with my coat and my shoes on, ready to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which was a massive surprise to him. But um, he explained to me uh, exactly why I shouldn't go home, and I explained to him exactly why I was going to. Um, and uh, and we reached a compromise, and, and I went home. <laughs> you said you were surrounded by old people. It's probably worth just uh, framing the conversation at what um, stage you were in your life. How old were you back then? Uh, 43. No, 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 47. Sorry, 47. Mm-hmm. So you're actually, I think, a week or two older than me. I think your birthday's in March, is that right? March 66. Yeah, yeah. I'm in April 66, so yeah, we're very similar age. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were less than a week in hospital, um, and dis- essentially discharged yourself. So, what, what what did you go back to? What what, what was uh, what was your sort of regime for going home? Well, did you get? Did you have a? I load didn't, of really, didn't really have. Didn't really have. A, oh, so medication wise, yeah, I had. Um, I guess what you would call the standard. Well, I know now is the standard package. I guess for um, for heart attack uh, patients, which is. Aspirin, um, uh, beta blocker, um, uh, a, a statin, uh, and a, a perindrogen. I'm still not quite sure exactly what that does. Uh, and uh, a ticagrelor, I think they call it, which is something that you take for 12 months. Um, it, it kind of to protect the stent, to stop anything from um, forming on the stent. So what I now understand to be a pretty standard package of um, of heart pills um and yeah i i, I didn't have a, a routine for it but yeah I, I went home i called sue sue came and picked me up um she literally drove me home as i say it's only four or five minutes anyway um dumped me in our lounge and off she went to work uh, and so on tuesday morning um i was sitting at home you know i think it was four days or five days after it all happened and i'm back in the same lounge where it all started mm-hmm and, and how did that feel? Um, I, I, I don't honestly know if I can answer that. At, at the time, I didn't feel really anything. I don't think I, I understood in any way, shape or form exactly what I'd just been through. Um, the enormity of it, if you like, hadn't, hadn't hit me at that point and didn't hit me for, for quite some time. And I kind of just thought, well, okay, they fixed it now and, and, and life goes on. So... Um, I sat at home on the Tuesday. I think I probably started playing poker again quite quite soon. Um, Wednesday and Thursday were exactly the same. I um, I kind of sat at home, not really knowing what was going on, watched a bit of daytime television, played a bit of poker. And by Thursday night, I was so bored that I decided that on Friday I would go back to work. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I couldn't drive, obviously. Um I wasn't ever stopped from driving, but I was advised not to drive for a period of time. I think it's um, a month, isn't it, if you have a heart attack? And I don't know. And- it's one thing I personally was never told by the by the cardiologist or in my discharge letter. Mm-hmm. I did check my discharge letter, funny enough, afterwards. Um, but it doesn't mention anywhere that I shouldn't drive. Um, as it happens, I didn't. Um, so yeah, on the on the Friday morning, which is exactly a week to the day after it all happened, um, I asked Sue to take me to Birmingham New Street Station, um, which she did, and uh, you know I, I went to work. Wow, 
So, do, do, had you had you been offered any rehab? I, I guess the the motions of the NHS don't work that quickly to be able uh, to offer it within a week. But uh... no, you're exactly right. I was offered rehab, not not at that point in time. I was offered rehab um, about a month later, um, which which I did do. But I I just like to go back to that Friday morning where I went to work because something very strange happened on that morning, and it was the beginning of the realization that I really wasn't right. Um, and that was Sue dropped me off at the station, and I needed to buy a ticket for um, because I don't normally go on the train. I normally drive to work, so I didn't have any you know any ticket to to get down to Northampton. Um, and I didn't have any money either. So I remember walking to the cash machine. Um, I, I remember my pin number. I, I think I took a hundred pounds out of the, out the hole in the wall. Uh, and then, okay, now I, I need a ticket. So I went to the ticket machine. I bought myself a return ticket to Northampton. And then I remember thinking, right, okay, now what do I do? Oh, I know I need some money. So I went back to the cash machine and, and I got another hundred pounds out of the cash machine. Uh, and then thought, okay, now what? Oh, I know, I need a ticket. So I went to the ticket machine, and I, I bought a, a ret another return ticket to Northampton. And it was only when I put that second ticket in my wallet, and I saw that I already had one, um, and I sort of put, you know, I saw this orange train ticket, pulled it out. Oh, that's strange. I've already got one. I wonder when I bought that. So uh, that was a sudden realization hang on something isn't right here how can i have possibly bought a ticket five minutes ago that i have no memory of um and i had a, a bit of a, a bit of a panic then in uh, in birmingham station and i went and i think i went and found the costa coffee shop and, and bought myself a coffee and sat down and tried to process that and tried to decide what to do uh, and i decided the best thing to do was go and get on a train because I was pretty sure that I could only get on it once. Once I was on it, I was on it. So, yeah, uh, I went and got on the train and off I went to work and didn't really think too much more about that that story. But um, that was the first indication that I had that I really wasn't right. Mm -hmm. in the, you weren't trapped in Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I arrived at work and, and they instantly put me in a taxi and sent me home again. So again, my return, my initial return to work wasn't quite as successful as uh, as you might think. But <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't go and get back on the train again. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. They uh, they all sort of looked at me in amazement. You know, why are you even here? What the hell are you doing? And, um, and my boss, yeah, literally walked me down the stairs into a taxi and sent me back home. Mm -hmm. So, so can you tell me sort of uh, what happened sort of the next year or so? Did you get that, any rehab and uh, what happened there? And then perhaps when you went back to work permanently? Yeah, I, I, I went back to work very quickly, to be fair. It, it, I think I, I had a, a sort of a phased return over the next couple of weeks where I'd go in a day or a couple of days. And, and within a month, I was back working um, exactly as, a, as I was before. Um, in terms of rehab, I was, as I say, I was offered rehab about a month later. Uh, and I did go a couple of times. I didn't find it very useful, to be honest. But what I did find in, in hindsight, and again, I, I didn't really realize it at the time, was that the hospital, when I was in there, and, in, and indeed at the rehab, it was 100% focused on the heart attack. 
the fact that I'd had a cardiac arrest didn't seem to be remotely relevant to anybody. It, it didn't seem to be re relevant to the uh, rehab nurses. It didn't seem to be relevant even to my cardiologist. I don't even know if I was told that, that I'd had a cardiac arrest. Maybe they told me, but it was kind of incidental. All of the discharge, docu uh, sorry, not documentation, all of the discharge drugs were heart drugs. They were all about the heart attack. All of the cardiac rehab was all about getting the heart healthy again and, and focusing on, on, on the heart attack. And pretty much nobody ever mentioned again after the day I sort of left hospital um, that I'd had a cardiac arrest. And in, in hindsight, that's the hard bit to recover from. The, the heart attack's relatively straightforward to recover from, but the cardiac arrest, as, as you know, um, is a lot harder. So how did that impact you over the sort of the, the one thing I've, I've found it quite interesting was that you you went back to to work so quickly and you said you were a, an engineer earlier and I can imagine you've got a lot of uh, stuff to remember and technical information to remember I would imagine it, it, was that not a problem? No, it wasn't luckily. Um, but memory, as it turns out, memory was a problem, but not long term. I I I'd retained. As far as I know, because how would you know? Um, but I'd retained pretty much everything I'd ever known. Um, so my memory was actually really, really good long term. But short term, and the incident in the train station was, was the beginning of the realisation of that. Short term, my memory was absolutely destroyed. Um, I couldn't remember what I'd had for breakfast. I couldn't remember even if I'd had breakfast um, I couldn't remember numerous things I'd done throughout the day. I couldn't remember conversations. I was constantly asking the same question time and time and time again because I had no memory of, of asking it. Um, and that was difficult at work um, because, uh, you know, my, my work at the time was kind of research and, and that kind of stuff. So um, you'd have a, you know, a light bulb moment and, but five minutes later, you couldn't remember you'd had it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, that was quite difficult. Um, and I still have memory issues now, not so much with the short term. It's not as bad as it was, but the other issue I have is, is, is word, um, it's trying to find a word. I can lose words very easily and it's not necessarily even a difficult word. It could be the word for table and I'm having a conversation with somebody and I don't know what the word for table is. Um, and that's quite frustrating. That still happens now, not as much as it did, but it, it still happens now where I was, I'll suddenly stop mid-sentence because I'm looking for a word and I can't find it. And the more you can't find it, the harder you try and the harder you try, the harder it is to actually find it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, was, uh, that was and still is difficult. But long-term memory didn't seem to be affected at all. Mm -hmm. was it, were there any other sort of sequelae as my favorite word is. <laughs> i knew 30 35 minutes before you got the word sequelae and you've done really well now. <laughs> not really not from the not from the cardiac arrest i think that um i still in the in the first year i still had no idea what had happened to me i think that's that's what really um really st strikes me now is I literally had no idea what had happened. I had no idea of the enormity of it or the impact of it. Um, so the first 12 months, the, the hardest thing for me to deal with was the medication. The medication I was on was really aggressive um, and I was really struggling 
to function. And, you know, I, I kind of make light of it now. I sort of said, I went back to work as if it's the most normal thing in the world. But I went back to work under this um, regime of, of, of pills. So I, I hated drugs before all of this happened. Well, I hate them now, but I wouldn't take anything. I wouldn't even take a, um, an anodine or something if I had a headache. Um, in my mind, you're not fixing the problem by taking an anodine. You're masking it, and I hated that. So I, I took pretty much zero medication for anything. And so to suddenly be on this weird cocktail of, uh, of drugs, I really struggled with. I should mention, actually, talking about the memory thing as well, I ended up back in hospital a, a couple of weeks later. Um, and this is something that may be valuable to newer members that are struggling with the same thing. I woke up one morning a couple of weeks later and I, I took quite a lot of pills first thing in the morning. And about half an hour later, I'd forgotten I'd taken them. Uh, and so I took them again, um, which turned out uh, not to be a good idea because one of them was a, a very hefty dose of beta blocker. And when I suddenly took double that, um, I was in big trouble and I ended up back on the floor and on the phone and 999 and um, back into... Uh, back into recess. I didn't actually arrest or anything, but um, I certainly wasn't very well for uh, for a few hours, all because I, I basically overdosed um, by taking uh, the drugs twice in, in such a short period of time. Uh, and after that, uh, Sue bought me one of these. I never thought I'd use one, but one of these packs where you lay all your drugs out sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and morning, afternoon, evening, they've all got their little box and she filled all that in. Uh, and then, you know, if I got to that particular morning's box and it was empty, then I knew I'd had them. Mm -hmm. It sounds a sensible move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's an incredibly sensible move. And I don't know why we didn't do it initially, um, but uh, we didn't. And, and I, you know, you di I didn't know I needed it. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know at that point in time that I had this significant um, memory issue. So... As far as I was concerned, uh, oh, yeah, I need to take my drugs. So I, I you know, got them out of the packet, took them, and bang, back in hospital. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned Sue there doing this for you. How was she through all of this? Oh, remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Sue works in the NHS anyway. Um, she's a, a, a healthcare professional. So um, she she took it all in her stride as she, as she takes most things in her stride. Um so, yeah, she was an absolute superstar and continues to be so. Well, as many of our partners are, we wouldn't be here without them. So, <laughs> No, no, indeed. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, so the first year was um, was uh, strange. Um, I was trying to deal with the, all these drugs. I was getting back into my work routine. But unbeknownst to me, I was actually getting worse, not better. Um, not physically, but mentally and, and emotionally, um, I started to really, really struggle because I couldn't do things that I used to be able to do. Um, physically, I couldn't do things that I used to be able to do. I, you know, I'd get out. I'd run a marathon in in around about two and a half hours. Um, I couldn't run up to the top of our stairs now without getting out of breath and, and, and needing a rest. Uh, I couldn't screw a screw into a wall. Um, I love cars. I, I used to build cars for a living. I still build cars and, and um, still uh, love my motor racing. Um, but a lot of mechanical work is quite physical. 
uh, and I just physically couldn't do it. And I was getting more and more and more and more frustrated with that. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really realize at the time, but yeah, I was getting um, quite angry, I guess, that I couldn't do all the things that I used to be able to do. And mentally, my health was, was getting worse and worse and worse. I'd never dealt with the cardiac arrest. I didn't even understand really that I'd had one. I, I hadn't done anything to to try to overcome that. And I realized that it was getting worse because I started to spend a lot more time at work. And it was because I didn't want to go home. Not because of Sue or because of any problem with a you know relationship or anything like that, but home is where all this happened. I don't remember anything after being on my lounge floor. Uh, sorry, my uh, my hallway floor. So my lounge at home, which is where I spent most of my home life, is where my heart attack happened. And the, our hallway is where is the last thing I remember. That's where everything started to go wrong. And I started to resent the house. I was I don't know whether I was scared of going home in case it happened again or whether I uh, I just it was a place I didn't want to be. And over the, the course of the first 12 months, um, I really was I would do anything that I could do to avoid going back to that house where I had all of those memories. Um, I think that post that you referred to um, on the Inspire forum, uh, that was, I remember actually making that post. I, I'd forgotten about it until you said it, but I remember making it. That was sitting in the same lounge at the same computer, probably with the, you know, not the same cup of coffee. It had been cold by then, but, um, you know, in the same sort of regime, having just got 10.40 at night, I'd have probably just got home from work or been home an hour or so. Um, and yeah, I, I I got to the point where I, I hated going back to that house. So, so what, I can totally understand that. And I, I mentioned to you uh, before we started talking about how Dr. Keeble uh, references a case in his talk about exactly that, where where the uh, family couldn't return to their their home and they lived in a caravan in the garden for quite a while before um well i don't know what they actually did after that but um yeah it, it can have a real impact mentally on people so how did you get out of that or what what happened next well sadly it had to get worse before it got better um i refer to two days uh, that changed my life um the first one was obviously the uh, uh the, the cardiac arrest and more or less a year later as I was deteriorating uh, more and more and more. A, a silly incident occurred. Um, it was probably a year and a half later, actually. I don't remember the exact date. I, I remember the, what happened. But, uh, you know, Sue and I had got up in the morning, uh, you know, normal regime and, and gone out to go to work. We had a driveway at the time where one car parked in front of the other. Um, so to get one out, you had to get the other one out. Um, and the car that was behind, if you like, closest to the road, which happened to be mine, um, kind of went out in the morning and um, well, I, I had a puncture. So I had a flat tyre, so I couldn't move that car and, and consequently couldn't get Sue's car out. And she, of course, had to get to work. So <clears throat> I, um, 
I remember looking at, at the puncture and I thought, well, I just haven't got the energy to change the tire. Um, bear in mind, I build cars from scratch. That That's what I do for a hobby. I build cars. And so a puncture should be a 30-second problem. And on that particular morning, I just looked at it and I haven't got the energy to change this tire. And I just sort of slumped down on the floor and started crying. And, and Sue sort of, you know, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I just said, what I actually said was, I wish you'd let me die when you had the chance. And at that minute on that morning, I meant it. I had absolutely had enough. I couldn't function. I couldn't remember things. You know, the long-term memory, as we've said, is, uh, is okay, but the short-term memory issue was, was driving me mad. And a stupid thing, a puncture, a puncture's absolutely nothing. But on that particular morning, on that particular day, um, I'd had enough of, of everything. And, and I meant it. So, yeah, um, fast forward a little bit. I did somehow manage to, to change the puncture and uh, got my car out of the way and, and Sue went off to work and, and I went off to work. And I remember that morning very, very vividly um, driving down the, the M1 or the M6 and the M1. I remember the conversation that I had with myself where I said, um, okay, no one's going to fix this but you. So today's the day you fix it. And, uh, yeah, I, I pretty much changed, changed my life uh, after that day. It's, something, it's amazing, really, that the number of patients that I've heard or cardiac arrest survivors say a similar sort of uh, thing. And I think it's incredibly sad, really, that all these um, time and effort is put into saving people but the the mental health of people afterwards suffers significantly, and not a lot is acknowledged that the the patients go through these uh, problems, and that uh, that's obviously what you were going through. Some sort of I don't know, maybe you would have been diagnosed with depression at that point to be able to think like that. Do you think you were depressed? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um... But I don't know what the definition of depression is. No, no, I'm not a medical uh, so, person either. But no. yeah, I think for people to have thoughts like that, though, you probably are depressed or borderline depressed. But even just to get into that situation, sort of, I know lack of understanding and lack of knowledge. What you well, it was, you were going it was through? Totally that. Totally a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, a lack of information, and it may even have been that evening when uh, when I found the Inspire. Forum. Um, you know, after after that feeling, I thought, right, I've got to do something about this. I had no idea what, but I knew I needed to do something. So, you know, kind of got onto Google to say, right, you know, what has everybody else done? I can't be the only person to have survived this in the world. What did everybody else do? Uh, and that was when I um, I found uh, either that night or or in a short period of time, I found the Inspire Forum. Uh, yourself and a few other people like uh, I think Richard was on there at the time, Mandy, Trudy and that was you know where uh, I made a lot of decisions actually on that day but one was to, to, to get help I had no idea how to get that help and that's how um, how I found Inspire 
we decided to move house because you know you can't go through the rest of your life not wanting to go home so the easiest way to solve that problem it wasn't going home that was the problem it was going into the house that was the problem so we decided to move house pretty quickly and we did move pretty quickly i also decided to uh, to uh, leave my job um, because the, the one hour drive every day wasn't doing me any favors i'd done it for eight years by then so uh, yeah a lot of decisions were made on that day but by far the best one was was finding inspire finding you uh, and, and the other people that i found and and actually the meet up in london the original meet up in london where i could talk to people that were going through not the same thing necessarily but certainly similar things and certainly people that totally understood where i was coming from i didn't open up anywhere near as much on that first evening of course as i have done just now i, I tend to to play my cards quite close to my chest so but internally that the fact that i was talking to people that got it was incredible incredible moment mm -hmm. i mean it sounds like you made some pretty radical moves at that point um but one thing that i is possibly missing or maybe you did uh, did did you go to seek any medical help no why was that i don't know I, I i genuinely don't know um i think because at that point i didn't know what help i needed um i didn't understand what was what was causing all of this um so i didn't know really where to go i do know that my gp basically doesn't know the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest so they were going to be pretty useless um i've never considered the possibility that i might need mental health help um before um and i've always been someone that's so i feel like i'm a problem solver that's what i do for, for a living almost is, is solve problems so this was a problem that i had to solve and i was pretty convinced that i was the only person that was going to solve it uh -huh. I, I understand that i mean it's similar to, to my story as well which i'm sure you know but uh, maybe you know um that's how how this has all come about sort of sca uk and that is because pe people are trying to solve a problem that, that there isn't a solution for at the moment we, we didn't realize we were solving a problem by we didn't we didn't realize it and, and we didn't it, we didn't really understand what the problem was you know the, the first step in solving a problem is understanding that there is one uh, and we knew that there was one but we didn't know necessarily what it was um so yeah i i all i knew was i couldn't carry on going down the same path that i was going down i didn't know whether my problem was was the house uh the drugs um or, or what it was or, or the, the you know being tired from the commute i had no idea but i knew that i had to do something and given that i didn't know what the right thing to do was i decided to do all of them mm -hmm. um so i quit my job we moved house I made some massive changes to my drug regime. I'm not for one second advocating uh, to anyone listening to this, by the way, that they should do that. Um, but I did. Um, and I, from that day, started to get better. Uh -huh. And uh, how else did the, uh, well, you've become sort of key player in SCA UK from mm. of, uh the last few years and, and uh, how has that helped you being a member of the group and what you've um, experienced? Oh, incredibly. Uh, you, you, can't put, uh, you can't put a value on it. it, it it's just been um, 
amazing. I mean, from that first meeting that we had in London, I didn't ever know what was going to come of that. I'm, I'm sure you didn't at the time either. But, you know, I've been to similar things before where people sit around in a pub in an evening and that's effectively what we were doing. Um, and, you know, somebody has a good idea and everybody agrees it's a good idea. And then you all kind of go home and assume that someone else will do it. Um, and 99 times out of 100, nobody else does it and nothing ever comes of it. Um, and that didn't happen in this case, you know, it happened to most of us, but you're the one that actually went home and said, right, you know what, that is a good idea. And, and you put the wheels in motion and you set up um, SCA UK, um, which has uh, just been, for me, it's, it's been absolutely invaluable. As I say, you know, when I first met you, I was as low as I'd been. Um, well, actually, by then I was a little bit better, but, you know, I was still at a pretty low point. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to talk to people and, and in fact, being able to, I think what helped me more now is I see people joining our group. Um, I say our group as if I had anything to do with it. It's your group really, but um, I see people joining with similar stories and, and every now and again, I sort of, you know, something will strike a chord with me and I was kind of reach out to that person and say, you know, don't worry, this is normal. And, and uh, well, not normal, but you know, it, it happens and, and you'll get over it. And, and so I think that right now trying to sort of support others to make sure that, or not make sure, but to try as much as I can that people don't go through the same 12 months that I went through, because I promise you the last couple of months of it were, were like a living hell. And if we can stop one person from ever getting to that point, then SCA UK has uh, has done its job as far as I'm concerned. And it's, I think it's an amazing organisation. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it is an amazing organisation as well. But it's not just me. It's, it, it is a, a community. It's you. It's many other people who, who feed into it. And that, that is the the sort of uh, benefit of having a peer-to-peer support group. And um, I think a lot of uh, the healthcare and NHS could learn from groups like ours. I'm sure there's there's probably health support groups for pretty much most conditions, but perhaps they're not um, focused or linked to, to healthcare providers as they should be. And uh, I'm, I'm sure they're not. I, I, as I say, my... I think when I was discharged from hospital and, and in the first 12 months of, you know, I think I had one follow-up appointment. Um, the fact that I'd had a cardiac arrest as far as the health professional or healthcare community was concerned was incidental. It, it was incidental to the to the heart attack. And they all focused on the heart attack and, and dealing with that. Um, and the heart attack wasn't my problem. That's quite easy to, to get over. Uh, it was everything else that that was difficult, and and the health community to this day actually hasn't touched upon it, has hasn't had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, all the help and support that I've had has come from FCA UK, all of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great, but it's a bit sad, really, in other ways, isn't it? And hope, hope, yes. hopefully, things in the next few years will change, especially if. Uh, some of the things that are bubbling under the surface do actually happen. But, um... I hope so. Um, it was interesting that, um, well, as you know, we, 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 I say we again, it's you really, but we've organised a couple of big events for SCA UK, obviously the, the world record last year and the, the Not Alone event this year. And it, it was, again, uh, interesting, if not staggering to me, that the, um, not the poll, what's the word I'm looking for? We did a... Um, 
a survey. But the survey that we did uh, of survivors at the Not Alone event in in uh, Rutland was the biggest survey ever undertaken of cardiac arrest survivors, uh, certainly in the UK, possibly in Europe, possibly even in the world. So, I mean, that's incredible that, that here we are in, in 2019 and, and that particular um, survey was the biggest one ever undertaken. And it was kind of, again, it was kind of incidental to the event. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're uh, playing your part down in, in saying that I organise these things. But um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they've definitely been a team effort. And then you, you start... Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, started uh well you you organized one in a meetup in birmingham a couple of years ago which i went to and uh i mean could you want to tell me about your your involvement what? in in the in the having meetups because we're trying to at this it, moment it was actually it was actually last year paul not a couple of years ago that's a, you got a memory problem <laughs> <laughs> the uh sort of the benefits of meeting up can you sort of sort of sum that up I think it's immeasurable. Um, so many people go through this alone, uh, even though they may have a partner and they may have a, you know, a family around them, they may have a, 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 an amazing support network. None of that network have actually been through the same event that they've been through. Um, so nobody really understands it. Nobody really gets it like another cardiac arrest survivor and similarly of course we, we should never forget um the partners uh, the people that did the cpr the people that have lived with this pain in the neck husband for the last 12 months um we should never forget the impact that it has on, on them uh, and i think that meeting um not just survivor to survivor but also partner to partner um uh, they also get what they're going through and we don't of course we're going through a different journey you know, it would be very naive of me to believe for one second that I understand what Sue's gone through because I've never gone through it. She's gone through it, and Tracy, your wife, has gone through it. Um, so they will come at this from a completely different perspective. So not just for me, but also for Sue, having people to talk to that have been through um, the similar experience uh, and understand what each other are going through, uh, I, I don't think you can put a value on it. Well, I, t- I think you're totally right there. And uh, I also just like to say thank you for all your help in, in what you've done in the group and uh, help organising the events because I know the uh, the Guinness World Record wouldn't have happened without uh, your technical expertise <laughs> in that. So yeah. Thanks for it's that. A, it's, it's a massive team effort. And so. the, the 127 of us that did um, yep. create that record, we take our hats off to you. And uh, <laughs> someone mentioned to me just recently about doing it again. So may- maybe we can do it again, uh, push push the target up a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, I'd love to do it again. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it, it, it'll be yeah fun to try and break our own record. Although fun wasn't the word that I used at the time. I seem to remember when we were no. doing all of the. Uh, doing all of the organization and, and the, everything there, the months and months of work that went into it. But funny enough, that gives you something to focus on. It gives you, uh, it gives you kind of a, a purpose outside of just the work and, and, and stuff. So um, I, I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed the organization of the, also the, the, the not alone event that we just did. You're right. I did organize something in Birmingham last year and uh, my, I'm very much planning to do that again 
Um, I was hoping to do something uh, in December, but I suspect it's a little bit too late now. But certainly next year, as we kind of breaking SCA UK up, not breaking it up, but as we're kind of dividing it up into into regions, uh, hopefully more of these type of meetings will become more accessible to a, a bigger number of people and a bigger number of people can benefit from them. Exactly. I mean, no, we don't want to break up the CAUQ, but no. we, 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 all, <laughs> Wrong words. we want to encourage more uh, localised meetups because we know the value of people getting together. And we'd also, I would like to encourage if any uh, medical professionals are listening who are interested in um, cardiac arrest survivors and people who uh, perform or lay people who perform CPR, or even if you're a medical professional, I've, I've heard of a medical professionals who are traumatized by doing doing it outside of their work environment so um you know try and get anyone who's uh, interested in this subject to come along and and help each other and the more meetups we can have around the country hopefully the more people um absolutely help so absolutely i mean i think i think well you were there i, I don't remember exactly how many people were at that very first meeting but uh, it couldn't have been much more than a dozen people, and I think it was, it was one more than a dozen. It was a baker's dozen. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and I guess what five, six survivors, so maybe seven. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. So from that, you know, from that tiny uh, meeting, um, to just look what's uh, what's come out of it. So you never know what's going to come out of a of a meeting of that kind of uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not just. Um, not just the the immediate sort of help um, uh, of getting support and talking to people that get it, but you never know what somebody will come up with an idea and you know some of it might disappear off in a, a tangent and, and anything good that comes out of it because you know, nothing exists within the NHS, so mm-hmm. it's up to us really. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I see we're, we're cl- clocking along on the old time, but I've got a couple, yes. a couple, <laughs> a couple of. Um topics that I would like to to speak with you because I know sure. there are a couple of things that have uh, happened to you or you, part of your journey that would be of relevance to other people and one of them is that as part of your work I don't know if it was when you were employed by someone else or I believe you started your own company but you've ended up uh, doing lots of flying around uh, the world. Yeah. So can you tell me? Yeah, I used, to, about I used to fly around the world quite a lot from, from my previous job, and and one of the reasons for um for trying to well not one of them but one of the reasons why I left my last uh, position and uh, set up my own company uh, was to uh, try to limit the amount of travelling that, that I was doing. Uh, it, it didn't work out that way. I pretty much ended up doing more travelling than ever before. But um, but yeah, uh, so I, I fly uh, quite a lot. That was interesting. The, the first flight that I took, bear in mind, I, I do genuinely fly all over the world for work. The first flight that I took after my um, SCA, I didn't think anything about it because I'm so used to flying. Uh, I just, you know, I think I went to Amsterdam, luckily. It was quite a short flight. Um, I you know, booked the ticket as I always do. I, I drove to the airport. I, I went through security, blah, 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 blah. Got on the plane, and then suddenly, when they shut the door of the plane before we took off, um, I suddenly had a mini panic attack. 
Um, I suddenly felt extraordinarily vulnerable. Now, this was only, I think, three weeks or four weeks after my SCA, so it was pretty quick. Um, but I suddenly felt very vulnerable. We hadn't even moved, hadn't even taken off when they shut the door. Um, that was that was a surprise to me. Uh, I wasn't expecting that in, in any way, shape or form. Um, I think because, you know, if it happens again up in the air, then, um, you know, does anybody on this plane know CPR? Is there a defibrillator? All these questions sort of mm -hmm. go through your mind. Um, and it was a reaction that I really, really, really wasn't expecting. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'll, I'm a seasoned flyer. I'll, I'll, I'll jump on a plane and go anywhere. So that's something maybe people could look out for if, if, um, if they're, uh, if they're flying for the first time, just, just be aware that that might happen. Obviously, the flight you know, went off without a problem, and, and on the flight back, I didn't even think about it, and I've never thought about it since. But, uh, yeah, that... Um, Something lurking in the subconscious. Mm, yeah, just, you know, it might happen. Just just be aware of that, I guess. And I was on my own as well. I wasn't uh, flying with anybody on that particular day, so I did feel very vulnerable on that particular flight. I, I took a flight as well. Uh, I, I had a develop. I, I wouldn't say I was a, as frequent flyer as you, but I would. I travelled all around the world as well, not uh, as regular, but um, and I wasn't worried about going on planes. But I, I seemed to have developed a phobia while I after my arrest, and it took me a good couple of years to work up the confidence to be able to go back on a plane so i know i sort of know it didn't spring up on me like a, a panic attack like you had although i did have a panic attack when i was in the hospital once but yeah i, I know that the, there are there is something lurking in in the depths of your mind perhaps that you don't always know what's going on and the, the, no. and the other thing i was going to say about you is that the you 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 didn't have the the sort of worries that many other uh survivors have in that you've got an icd and sort of uh, the sort of worries about going through the detectors and things like that so you didn't even have any thoughts about the fact that you got stents or anything because no 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 i don't think they show up on that <laughs> no, i don't think they show up on that but I, th I think there is a supposed to be a, a period you're supposed to wait before you you undertake flying again uh quite possibly but uh i was you know bear in mind i was never even told i couldn't drive never mind fly <laughs> that's true um, i i had uh i had zero information when i was discharged from hospital i, I i'm not talking about minimal I'm talking about zero, uh -huh. nothing. So, uh, so I had no idea whether I was allowed to fly or not. All I knew is I needed to be in Amsterdam that weekend. So I went and got on the flight, and uh, and I was there. Something else happened. We, I think the, that particular bit of bit of a panic attack was by not having an ICD. I didn't have the the protection if it happened again. I, I would need an AED, and uh, I didn't even know if there was one on the plane. Uh, as it turns out, there wasn't, and it's quite remarkable how many planes don't have them. Um, not all carriers have them. Not all um, flights have to have them. Even long-haul flights don't have to have them. It's not a, a legal requirement. So um, I have started to look at, on the longer-haul flights, I've started to look at the airline and, and find out which ones have defibrillators on board and which ones don't. But something else happened uh, a couple of years later, actually, um, flying back from Milan in Italy. I was flying back to Birmingham one evening um, and 
I had a little bit of angina, I think, on the flight. Um, certainly uh, enough that I didn't feel very well. Um, and I tried to, to take my GTM. My GTM was in my case. I normally keep it in my pocket, but it was in my case, in my hand luggage case, which was in the uh, overhead locker. Could you just explain um, what GTN is? Sorry, GTN is it's uh, it's a spray uh, that you spray underneath your tongue if uh, you feel any sort of chest pain. Um, it's really for angina, which is yeah, it manifests itself as a little bit of chest pain. You spray that under your tongue, and it kind of opens up your arteries a little bit, allows uh, the blood to flow easier. So. Uh, just allows you to function a little bit better. I, I pretty much never touch it, but on that particular uh, day, well, I, I say never touch it. It's not a conscious decision. I pretty much never needed it. Um, uh, but when I have taken it, I know that it makes me very dizzy uh, and my blood pressure drops uh, quite a lot. Uh, and on this particular evening, uh, flying back to, to the UK, flying back to Birmingham, um, I had a little bit of angina on the flight. I think it was angina anyway, uh, well, I thought it was at the time. I'd taken my GTN spray, uh, and that had done what it normally does. My blood pressure dropped. I lost all the colour uh, out, uh, out of my body, and I really didn't feel very well. Um, and at that point, I think I started to have another panic attack. So, um, yeah, I was getting quite worried, you know, what was going on up here? Why wasn't I feeling well? Um, who was going to do something about it and, and a stewardess happened to notice that I wasn't very well uh, she asked if there were any medical people on board and remarkably there was there was a paramedic from Sandwell Hospital which is the hospital that I was taken to uh, when I had my arrest so uh, uh, he uh, he basically took one look at me and said right we, we've got to get on the ground uh, and I would say, no, we haven't. I'm fine. I've taken my GTN, um, just, you know, carry on to Birmingham and then, yeah, I can go to the hospital from, uh, from the airport. And, and no, he wasn't having any of that. Uh, he talked to the captain and they decided they had to get on the ground wherever we happened to be. Uh, and we happened to be pretty close to Paris. Uh, so they, uh, yeah, they made an emergency landing, uh, in Paris. And I have to tell you, if you're ever worried about how quickly you can get a plane down from 35,000 feet, it's pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> safely, we should have. Yeah, safely, yeah. Uh, we, were on the, we were on the tarmac in Charles de Gaulle within 15 minutes of, of deciding that, uh, that we had to get down. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a, a, a bit strange. And there, there's another um, angle to that as well, isn't there? With the, uh, there's a cost to that, isn't there? 57,000 euros. <laughs> Unfortunately, you had to... that's that's the cost of diverting a flight at fifty-seven. Well, that particular flight, fifty-seven thousand euros. <laughs> and fortunately... so if anyone ever thinks about travelling without travel insurance, don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's a salutary lesson, really, because mm. fortunately, you it was covered. Um, yes. By your by your travel insurance or by the the um, uh, is it EHIC that cover it. The, the EHIC, well, so I was uh, transferred off the plane. There's a story to that as well. I'll come back to that. But I was transferred off the plane into a hospital in Paris where I stayed uh, remarkably for another four days, almost as long as I spent in hospital on the, for the original event. Um, all of the medical expenses were covered by my EHIC. Uh, it's a bit like having an American Express. You just kind of wave this card at them and uh, 
and magically uh, everything happens. It's uh, again, don't travel without that. If, while while the EHIC is still in existence, while we're still in the EU, um, anybody travelling abroad should make sure they've got one and make sure they got it with them. Um, but that would not have covered the the cost of the diversion of the flight, uh, and that was paid for by uh, travel insurance. So again. Um, travel insurance if you've got any sort of health condition or even if you haven't um highly recommend making sure you've got travel insurance mm -hmm. and for why that would have been a rather hefty bill to pay wouldn't it it would have been a bill that didn't get paid <laughs> <laughs> i didn't have i didn't have a spare fifty-seven thousand euros floating around to pay for that so yeah <laughs> Yes, uh, uh, but that was quite strange when we we landed in Paris, and, and you know this wasn't a heart attack or a cardiac arrest, as it turns out. Uh, although they were sufficiently worried about me that they kept me there for four days, and I did actually end up back in the cath lab um, and having another look at uh, at the stents in my um, in my heart to make sure they were all still patent. I believe is is the word. But having landed and having been sort of, uh, they they took me off the plane on a a stretcher thing into the back of an ambulance where we sat for at least 15 minutes sitting on the tarmac because the, the plane didn't even um it didn't even go to the to the stand or to the gate or whatever you called it it literally stopped on the runway and they sent the, a fire crew and an ambulance crew out to the plane they put me in, in the back of this ambulance and then yeah as i say we waited 15 minutes and there were people kind of working on me and doing tests and things and i was on oxygen at this point had a drip in my arm and I, I remember that was a panic as well, because I'm thinking, well, why, why are we not on our way to hospital? Um, are things that bad that, um, that we need to sit here on the tarmac? Uh, and they weren't. What was actually happening was the pilot was rummaging around in the bottom of the plane trying to find my suitcase. <laughs> because they couldn't take off again. You're not allowed to fly with a suitcase and not a passenger. So they couldn't take off again, so they had to find my suitcase. Eventually, the pilot literally opened, the pilot himself opened the back doors of the ambulance gave me my suitcase and shut the doors and then off they went to Birmingham and off I went to what I thought was going to be a hospital but we drove for I think you know 30 seconds and then stopped again and then they, they got me out so I was thinking well okay it's Charles de Gaulle it's a massive airport it's probably got its own medical facilities maybe that's where we're going it wasn't where we were actually going was immigration so even having been sort of medevaced off of this uh, off of this uh, aircraft I still had to go through immigration, even though I was on my back on a gurney with a with a uh, an oxygen mask, and I still had to show my passport. And then they put me back in the ambulance and took me to the hospital. So I, that was something I wasn't expecting. Never even thought of. But yeah. <laughs> yes, it was uh, certainly an interesting story and a lesson yeah. for everyone else. Yeah, always make sure you got your passport, your e pick and your insurance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And you've got another little saga that I don't know if it's still ongoing. That's regarding some dental treatment that you've needed. Yeah, it's still ongoing. You can probably hear um, from the way that I'm lisping every now and again. Uh, my teeth were a mess before all of this started um, seven years ago, but they got gradually worse. And I needed to have some extractions and have some, some new teeth fitted. And as I'm sure you're aware, there's a, there's a link between teeth and heart. And it hadn't ever really occurred to me at the time, but I really, really, really struggled to find a dentist that would take me on, given my, my cardiac condition. 
you know, they'd all look at them and you know, clean them and, and whatever. But if I actually needed a filling or an extraction or anything like that, I couldn't find anywhere that would take me on. And I needed a lot of extractions. And I had several referrals to several hospitals, one of which was, was Sandwell, the, the one where um, this all journey all started. Uh, and even they wouldn't uh, take me on. My own hospital, now, I now live in Bromsgrove. My own hospital wouldn't take me on. And I had to hunt and hunt and hunt before I found somewhere that would uh, eventually agree to, to the extractions that I needed in order to move the process forward and get my new teeth fitted, which still hasn't happened. I have now had the extractions, but only a few weeks ago. And it, it took the best part of two and a half years from when I first started looking for somebody to do this to actually getting it done. So, yeah, two and a half years of stress trying to get a couple of teeth extracted. Mm -hmm. Apparently, if I went private, I could have had them done the next day. Yeah, but... quite like it probably cost you a few bucks as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I, I kept being told that, you know, medically it wasn't worth the risk. I think their risk, not mine. But, yeah, eventually I found somewhere in uh, uh, that would do it. Mm -hmm. So did you have them uh, removed under a general anaesthetic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had to have quite a lot removed. I think it was 17. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Um, in, in, yeah. In one go. Well, it, it, funny, that's, it, everyone says ouch, but it didn't actually hurt no. at all. I had no, no pain from that whatsoever, even after I, I came round. But I think because of the general anaesthetic, I think it's the first time I've had a general anaesthetic since um, the cardiac arrest, since I was put into the coma. Uh, any other medical procedures I've had, including actually being three times in a cath lab, um, I've never been put to sleep uh, for any of the procedures that I've had to have. I've always been awake and conscious and, and even talking. And, you know, the cath lab's an interesting experience because you can watch it all on television as it's happening. So, um, yeah, this was the first time I'd had to have a general anaesthetic. And I think that's what made people particularly uh, nervous. Um, in the end, it, it went absolutely fine. Um, but a surprise just how difficult it was to find anywhere that would touch me, um, touch me uh, dently. Mm -hmm. And it was Walsall Hospital, if anybody's local and wants to know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably they're the, uh, a crash kit, or well, they probably have a crash kit to hand anyway, whenever they do it, an op, because I'm sure a number of, but there's always risks, aren't there, doing operations? and Yeah, there's, there's risk to any procedure. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I was on a crash cart and I was taken in, uh, and I think that's quite unusual for dental work. But uh, yeah, um, I had the whole team. I had the resus uh, and everybody. And yeah, you know, I guess there must be. I, I kind of make light of it, and I get a bit annoyed about the fact that it, that it took so long to do it. But when you look at the cost to the NHS of that procedure with all of those people that I had to have around me, um, you know, we're not talking about one or two. I think I had twenty people. Uh, in the theatre with me uh, at the time that I was having this procedure done, um, then when you understand that, you appreciate what just how difficult it was to to get that done uh, under the NHS. Uh, um, but yeah, eventually, eventually it was done. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Well, I hope you you get your nice new shiny gnashes soon. <laughs> I hope so as well. I thought I would have them by now, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, Having had so many removed in one go, your mouth is, is still kind of moving around all the time so until it settles. So I don't really want to do the next bit of the, of the procedure, which is obviously put the new ones in. Mm -hmm. 
So I think we're probably coming towards the end now, but um, sort of like to ask about what your life is like now compared to prior to the cardiac arrest. And you got any sort of um, questions about what happened to you or have you got any regrets about maybe your lifestyle? You mentioned you smoked and your sort of traveling and uh, the hours that you worked or? Well, I think other than the fact that I've got a much shorter journey to work, um, my life now isn't actually that different to, to what it was before. I went through a period in that first 12 months of, of my life being very different uh, because I tried to do all the things that I was told to do. I, I, I tried to, I, you know, I took all the medication I was supposed to take. I, ate, I My diet was as healthy as, uh, as a diet could be. Um, I stopped smoking. And I became... Uh, a different person. I became a person that actually I didn't like very much, and that culminated in that in that particular morning that, that we just discussed. And subsequent to that, after I decided to move house and change my job and, and, and set up the company and all, all that kind of thing, I've very much gone back to who I was before. I've started smoking again, which I probably shouldn't tell people on here, but I think most people that know me know that anyway. I never did drink very much, and I still don't drink very much, but I enjoy the occasional sort of pint and the occasional G&T. Uh, I still work all the hours under the sun, and uh, you know, that's me. That's who I am. I don't think it'll ever change. It, it took me a long time to get back to the same person that I was before all of this happened. I don't know whether I'm exactly the same person, but it, it took me a while. But I think my life now is uh, very, very similar. I still enjoy my motor racing. Uh, I still pop outside with the occasional cigarette and I still work 12 hours a day. So not much has changed in that respect. Don't you worry that you're going to end up in the same situation, but perhaps with a different outcome? No. <laughs> no, I genuinely, I, no, I genuinely don't. And, and there's, a, there's a reason for that. And it might be quite tough to listen to, but it genuinely, the person that I became while I was doing all the things that I was supposed to do to stay healthy I did not like that person. I hated being that person. And I would rather have 10 or 12 or 15 years of being me than 30 years of being whoever the hell this other person was because I really hated every minute of being that other person. So if this all ends tomorrow, at least it all ends tomorrow in, in with me living my life the way that I want to live it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine Dr. Keeble listening to this saying he needs to make me an appointment to go and see somebody else. <laughs> but do you think part of you know you, the struggle that you went through in the first year, you, you said you you came out with no help from the hospital and it's um, only what you've learnt through sort of uh, SCA UK and forums, but if you had had perhaps the help that you would have needed or should have needed, perhaps do you think you'd be thinking different? Uh, quite possibly, but yeah, how would we ever know? I, I would hope that I wouldn't have been allowed to get as low if I'd have had the help that SCA UK now provides. If I, I probably would never have got as low as I got. I would never have got to that particular day. But equally, I had to get to that day in order for me to uh, to decide to do something about it and get better. Um, whether that would have still happened with with um, some professional support and some counselling and and support from the NHS or not, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. 
But I do know that I did not enjoy being that person and I do not want to go back to being that person. Mm-hmm. Okay. You met, you asked if I had any regrets as well. Yeah, I do. I lost two very good friends throughout this process in, in the first 12 months when I didn't really know how ill I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I made a couple of poor decisions and lost two very good friends through totally my fault, absolutely not their fault. Uh, and I wish that hadn't happened. And, you know, I've lost them in a way that oh, I'm not going to get them back. So, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a regret or two regrets that I have. I wish I hadn't, uh, wish I hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. We are changed or a lot of people have changed. Their personality has changed. Their brain chemistry probably at a very basic uh, level has changed. And we do, we do perhaps become irrational or have, have different thoughts to how we were before and perhaps people can't always understand why we're like that and perhaps also people don't know how to deal with people who have gone through the experience we've done and you know I do see or have seen a lot of uh, relationship breakups whether they're a you know a, a partnership or whether they're just friends and I think a lot of the the dynamics do change so you know I wouldn't totally blame yourself for all of that no, I, I, I guess if I don't blame myself, then who else do I blame? Because it, it certainly wasn't uh, certainly wasn't their fault. No, 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 no. Um, but I, understand, I, mean... I understand what you're saying. We don't we, we don't know what we're doing. We don't understand that we have a problem. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe with some support from the likes of SCA UK in an in an earlier stage, maybe I wouldn't have made those decisions that I made, and I wouldn't have lost those friends. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you know, the sounds of it, you went through period of, of depression or help, mental health issues, certainly, and you know, maybe some of the decisions you made went back then weren't um, because you were fully cognizant of what you were doing and what you were saying, no. and which is, no, sure. which is, uh, you know, what a lot of mental health issues are. No, exactly. You know, how do we know? Mm-hmm. Okay. My my uh, Sue tells me that I'm a I have a different character now to what I had before. She tells me I'm a lot more tolerant now than I used to be. I don't think you'll probably believe that. But, uh... <laughs> I'm not sure I would have liked to have known you before. <laughs> but but you know I'm not aware of that. So you know how do we know? We have no idea. Exactly. Okay. Can you just to finish on then? If you got any as you're a sort of a, a, over six years, um, sort of well, it must be six and a half years now, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, coming up for seven years, yeah. Got any tips for anything, anyone going through what we've all been through, um, you know, in the first months or the first year, which is obviously critical for you? You got any thoughts that you can help other people? Don't try and go through it alone. Don't do what I did. Don't, don't shut everybody else out and try and deal with it yourself. Take every little bit of help and support and advice that you can possibly get whether you believe it's relevant or not, do not try and go through this journey on your own. That's very wise and uh, one good reason for at least joining SCA UK or or coming along to one of the sort of forthcoming smaller meetups or maybe a big meetup that we have next. And, and also a reason for, for getting the SCA UK message out there. I think I don't know what the statistics are on a daily basis, but I'm sure that we're, we're only scratching the surface um, with the, with our membership. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people are still going to be discharged, as I was, without any knowledge that SCA UK exists 
or without any knowledge uh, of how to find it or, or even that they need to find it. So uh, not just to members that might be listening to this that you know, to say don't go through it alone, but any opportunity you get to contact your local cardiac centre or GP or whatever, get hold of our leaflets, get them out there, get them into the cardiac centres, get them into the ambulance stations, and uh, the more we can get this message out, um, the more people we, we can help in the future. Absolutely. That's incredibly uh, wise words there. And if you are listening to this podcast and wondering what the leaflet is we're talking about or Gareth's been talking about, it's uh, it's just a leaflet basically tells you about what SCA UK is and does um, and basically is a pointer. And if you want to get some for your cardiac unit, then please uh, have a look at our website and there's a link on there, but you can get them from SAD UK who uh, print them up for us and help handle the distribution. So please do get some and get them in your hospital so we can do as, as exactly as Gareth says. Got any more tips or should we leave it? Not, not tips, but I did, I did want to say one thing. It, it, I think it's I've listened to every podcast uh, on the website. Um, I don't know whether I'll listen to this one or not, <laughs> but I've listened to all the others. I, I think I'd just like to say, Paul, I think it's easy for people to forget that you're also a survivor. Uh, and you're going through this same journey that, that all of the rest of us have gone through. And I just want to say that I think you do an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, and I want to take the opportunity to thank you for doing that. Without you, these podcasts wouldn't exist. SCA UK wouldn't exist. And the help and support that I've had over the last five years wouldn't exist. So I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you to you. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Well, I only do it to keep myself out of mischief. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's what Tracy told me. <laughs> oh, I'm glad people are enjoying them, or you, you're enjoying them. I've, at least I've got one fan. <laughs> I said I, I said I'd listen to them. Yeah. I didn't say I'd, I didn't say I'd enjoy yeah, them. Well, that, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think um, yeah, I've been. I've, it's been a, a, an interesting project for for me doing this and chatting with people, and I have had a few people say that they've enjoyed having a chat um and i i think there there is a lesson to be learned in that actually that uh just talking and sharing your story can uh make you feel better so um, absolutely absolutely and i think that's one of the other things from the meetups that people get get from it just talking to someone who's not necessarily a close family member can be a really enlightening experience yeah <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so I think we'll leave it there. And thank you very much for uh, an hour and a half of your time. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been a really interesting uh, chat and some real good points that you raised and uh, lots of uh, learning for other people. And um, yeah, I think it's always worthwhile when you can share the sort of bad things that you've gone through and hopefully other people can benefit from them as well. So if, if, Absolutely. If, if just one person listens to this and feels a little bit better then it's been worth it so thanks very much for your time and I will speak to you oh you're very welcome it's been a pleasure thanks a lot cheerio okay thanks bye